what he's done for others. He will do for you. Arms wide open, he will pardon you. For it is more time. It is no secret, for it is no secret what my God can do, what He's done for others. Yes, He'll is pretty scratchy this morning, so I apologize if I uh, start straining on some of the higher uh, notes this morning, so I I ask that you uh, just bear with me. Uh, I was doing a little yelling and screaming yesterday, so um, in a good way, wasn't at my kids. Um, So it's good to have all of you here this morning. I'm going to ask Brother Josh if he would uh, come and open the service in a word of prayer. Uh, we just want to remember uh, the uh, males are not here with us. The Cross family's away. want to remember Brother Troy and Sister Connie are at home. 
Brother Steve and Sister Sarah uh, Coffey are in Virginia. Today, we want to remember Brother Jaron, who is uh, working. We want to brother, remember Brother Tom Ward, who's continuing to recover. We want to remember our sister Anna Pritchard. And then if you have any unspoken prayer requests, we make it known. Aren't you thankful there's somewhere where we can go? Amen. When we have a need, when we have something that's troubling us, amen. Amen. Brother Josh. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, it's such a wonderful feeling, Lord, to be in your house this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for being able to gather, Lord, and for our health. I pray, Lord, for the ones here who have a need, Lord, on their heart. I pray you just answer it, Lord, and be able to touch their body, Lord, or their mind, or let let them lay their worries aside, Lord, and let you be their comforter, Lord, this morning. We pray for the service, Lord, for our pastor. We pray, Lord, the word will just touch our hearts, Lord, and May that seed just continue to grow, Lord, as we draw closer to you, Lord, today. Be with these needs, Lord, that were written and spoken, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you just meet their need, Lord, this morning. We love you and we thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing um, one more song, Sister Becky, before we uh, have our seats. Uh, I need you, Lord. Amen. With everything that's going on, I, that's how I feel more and more every day. Amen. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, right now. Amen. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, right my hands and I bow my knees oh and worship at your throne oh I need you Lord I need you Lord right now we need you Lord
with my hands and I bow my knees oh and worship at your throne I need you Lord I need you Lord Turn and wave to those that are around you. Say hi, and then you, uh, you may have your seats. We're going to ask uh, Sister Lauren if she'll, uh, Cockman, if she'll come up at this time. To She's got a special for us this morning. And while she's making her way up, um, we want to welcome Johanna and Julia. Um, most of you probably don't know that from Happy Valley, right? Uh, most of you probably don't know this about me, but I've known Julia since she was born in Edmonton and uh, have known her mom and dad uh, for a very, very long time and her grandparents up there, great, great family. Also want to welcome Brother Mark's mom here with us as well. God bless you. Hope you uh, all feel welcome and enter into the service with us. Seeker, I have knocked a thousand times upon your door, and a thousand more. I'm bound, I'm sure. Lord, I've been a sinner, and I can't convince myself it doesn't matter anymore. So when I fall apart, believe. I deserve the pain You are at the heart of what remains And Lord, you know the world Is a broken sword, a place But could you spare a moment For a child of little faith Cause I've tried to think, to feel, to hope My way out of the mess I made And all that I have left Give and take away. Blessed be your name. Lord, I've been a traveler. I have crossed the world to stand on foreign shores. And I've heard the stories of those who came before. But Lord, I have been unfaithful. There been times when I forgot that your word matters anymore. So when I fall apart, when I can't find the words to say, you are at the heart of my remains. And Lord, you know the world is a broken sword, a place, but could you spare? a child of little faith as I've tried to think to feel to hope my way out of the mess I made and all that I have left for you is praise give and take away blessed be your name 
sounding so incredible this morning I have been so blessed sitting over there listening to you all so I know that uh, I know the Lord must be even more so blessed this morning it's just such a thrill to be here I had a request uh, to sing this song this text was sent to me so you all know this one it's nice to know that regardless of the clouds that, that we have over us now you know, even uh, with all the things going on, that we're looking forward to that unclouded day. So you all just help us sing this song. Put your hands together, get relaxed. You know how we are. So just help us sing this song. This is for Brother Mike Pritchard this morning. Oh, they tell me of a home far beyond the skies. Oh, they tell me of a home far away oh they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise oh they tell me of an unclouded day Storm clouds rise. Whoa. 
Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one uh, more song before our pastor comes. I'll fly away. Some glad morning when this life is over. Amen. Thank you for the specials this morning. Really enjoyed them. Uh, appreciated them. Well, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll, I'll fly away to a God celestial shore, I'll fly away, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away, I'll not die, hallelujah, my and my, This life that house but this is his house too amen this is your house sorry father This is your house. 
Father, we ask now that you would just bless this gathering of your people. And Lord, it's so wonderful to be able to see folks in a time of isolation, a time, Lord, when most folks are uh, off to themselves. We are just honored, Lord, to be in the presence of your people. Lord, to be able to fellowship again, even if it's in a limited way, Lord, we are thankful for that opportunity. But Lord Jesus, we are just always humbled when we come into your presence and we bow before you, Lord, and we sing your praises, and we, we speak to you, Lord, and we desire that you speak to us. It's just such a, a blessing, Lord, to be able to linger in that presence and to realize, Lord, that this is just a foretaste of glory divine. One sweet day we shall gather across that great divide, and we will be together never to have to worry about any sickness or illness, Lord, or any hesitation without any holding back, we'll be able, Lord, to enjoy eternity with you. Father, we just ask now that you would minister to the sick and the needy today. Lord, there are many, many concerns, Lord, but we just commit them to you. We also pray, Lord, that you would just bless those that are here today. Lord, keep us safe, I pray, and and Lord, just minister, Lord, the word to our hearts. Lord, for the many that are listening online, we just ask that you would just inspire them as well and give them that touch that they need and, Lord, speak to their hearts. We just thank you, Lord Jesus, for your presence and we just ask now you'd take complete control, asking forgiveness for our sins and our weaknesses, our mistakes, Lord. We just place them at your feet today. Come, I pray, in the volume of the book now and reveal your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. God bless you. We let our musicians take their places and we welcome all of you to the house of the Lord today. And uh, it's always great to, to be uh, gathered together and to see each one. We just trust that the Lord will uh, bless you and um, it's just uh, always an honor. Uh, everybody's moved around. You know, it's one of the one of the hazards of, of this whole situation is everybody's, no one's in a normal seat. Uh, but um, so if I intermittently through the service welcome you uh, here, uh, understand that that's why. So we're, we're glad and honored to have 
all of you here, our guests and visitors as well. Uh, we have a couple of things that we wanted to share with you today, and uh, just to be able to show you a few things. First of all, we wanted to acknowledge that we have a couple of birthdays. Uh, July 16th, John Anthony Harwell, uh, his birthday uh, is remembered, the anniversary of his birth. Uh, and then Richard and Mary Smith, uh, their anniversary, and I don't know what year their anniversary is, but we wish them all the very best uh, on their anniversary. July 17th is Brindley Hughes' birthday. How old? Five years old. God bless you, Brindley. Good to have you today. And then uh, July 18th is also Sister Sheba's uh, birthday. We want to send greetings to her. They listen very faithfully and uh, let me tell you what Cost was listening for his birthday announcement last last week, 16th birthday, and uh, just very excited. So we're we're grateful for that. Uh, the Pascals are not here today. They were on their way and got called into work. Things are very very busy for Brother Joe, and so they had to go north instead of coming south. And uh, they wish to be remembered. The McGarrys also are not here. They're up in Pennsylvania, and uh, the Ivies as well. They're uh, picking up Rebecca, so they're not here today. Uh, we also as well wanted to uh, continue to remember Sister Karen Pruitt and just uh, I want to keep that before you and just ask that the Lord will uh, give her strength and a total recovery. She's uh, gone through quite an ordeal with the surgery and uh, the complications uh, that she's had and so uh, Brother Tim told me last night he said that they are uh, envisioning a well body and he said we're just walking towards it. And uh, we want to join with them in prayer uh, for sure. Um, we also have a request given by Sister Sarah Buchanan, her cousin, who is David Farmer's daughter, right? And is very ill with the COVID uh, virus in South Carolina. And uh, so they've asked for prayer and she's in serious condition. So we want to remember that need uh, this morning as well. Brother Aaron, it's good to have you here. Uh, appreciate you sitting right up front row. Good to have you here. This is Brother Aaron Mengo Maza. How is that? Good? Close enough? You say it. Nengo Maza. God bless you. From Zimbabwe. And uh, they're living in uh, Charlotte now, Charlotte area. And your wife's name? Trish, God bless you both. Good to have you with us. And uh, we uh, gotten to know one another uh, just a little bit through this week and uh, glad to have you with us uh, in the assembly. And may the Lord bless you and uh, make you feel very welcome among us. Sister Sylvester, good to have you with us as well. Always a pleasure and a blessing to see you here. Uh, I wanted to, uh, this morning, just make a quick announcement that we have a Mother's Day gift for all of our mothers, and uh, it's outside the door uh, today when you leave, so one for every mother uh, who's here today. We have several who are not here, but we want to honor our mothers, and uh, good to have Sister Becky with us today, and uh, she prepared this uh, very carefully for all the mothers, and so we appreciate mothers, and you say, well, Brother Barry, you're late. Not really, because Brother Branham said every day should be Mother's Day. So to me, I am right on time. Sister Hannah, God bless you. Good to have you with us today. Take your Bible for a minute and uh, let's look in the scripture. And I, I, you can remain seated. Uh, I just want to do this before we look to the word this morning. Jeremiah chapter 29. 
for reading. Just going to show you this. I had a couple of other covers and just didn't get them up here. This is a new cover for Daniel 70 weeks in the Bemba language. And this is how we uh, uh, get covers designed. And uh, this is kind of a, a template for the cover. And then we merge that with the book. And the book is, comes from our translator. This, the, the, the wording goes to Norway. And we merge all that together. It goes to China. From China it goes to South Africa. And South Africa it's put on a truck and goes all the way to Zambia. Because Zambia doesn't have a port. It's a landlocked country. And so this is one of four books that we're doing. We're doing the seven seals, the seven church ages, adoption, and Daniel 70 weeks all at the same time. They're all going to be shipped uh, into Zambia. They're all translated already. They're now just being formatted this way. And, and this is what we uh, do and make sure that all of the pages fall in the right place and all the right acknowledgments are in the book and so forth. And then they go from there uh, over to China and they, they start the process. So they're uh, all ready to get uh, going over there. So this is exciting for the people in uh, in, in that part of the world. They are uh, very excited to have their own books and to know that people are actually thinking about them and, and providing this uh, resource for them is very, very inspiring for the people there. So uh, I, I want to say on, on their behalf to you that they appreciate uh, the offerings that are given and the money that's designated for Vision Books at all uh, goes to this and, and uh, gets in the hands of the people. They're almost as excited about all the as they're almost as excited as the people in East Africa who are now receiving their own Bibles. And we were able to purchase um, over a thousand Bibles, hardcover Bibles for the people over there. And it, there's a, a process that they go through in getting them to Brother Elias. Brother Elias sends them out to different regions. And then from there, they're distributed among the people. And that's all ongoing now. It's $9,800, I think, is what it costs. And uh, it's all been paid for. And uh, the money's already uh, in their hands there. So uh, it happens African time, as you know. And uh, it, it gets there, but it's all on the road. So we're just excited about that uh, for those people over there. And I will tell you that even though you may not ever meet them, you may not ever get to shake their hand, uh, because nobody's shaking hands anymore, uh, they really do appreciate that. And, and when, you get, uh, when you get in the glory and you get on the other side, let me tell you something, uh, they, may f- they may seek you out. They may find you out. And and thank you for that, but uh, it's a, a really great blessing for them. All right, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, this was Jeremiah's promise to the children of Israel as they were heading into captivity. They were not there yet, but they were on their way. And, they, and, and, and this is what Jeremiah told them. He said, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. So this was God's promise through Jeremiah, the promise of return. And he said, I will perform that word. That word perform is a huge Hebrew word. It literally means that God will breathe into that word at that time and make it live. He'll make it come to pass. And it's going to happen. There's nothing going to prevent it. This is in the mind of God. This is the performance of God. And he's going to make it real, make it happen, and you will return. And I will not forsake you. And then he says, a very important verse, that is as timely for us as it is for them. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, 
to give you an expected end. And I think it's a comforting thing as, as all of us face an uncertain future that somebody among us knows what that future is and what it looks like. He knows exactly where it's taking us and he knows exactly what the end result is or the end goal. And so we are thankful for that. And as a result of that, uh, I want to say to our graduates today that we are, uh, we are thankful for their labors and their uh, investment and their work in getting to this point of graduation. And uh, they have now achieved this, uh, this uh, honor of, of graduating from their uh, coursework and moving on now to things that uh, lay in their future. And so uh, we wanted to honor them today and give them their due and just say that we believe that uh, God has a plan for you and he knows that plan. Best thing for you to do is to stay in contact with uh, the Holy Spirit and follow him uh, to the fulfillment of that plan for your life because that's always, always the safest place and the most successful place is in the middle of the will of God. And so we pray that God will bless all of you richly and that God will guide you and lead you uh, in the next uh, phase of your life and that God will uh, show you his way and and protect you along that way. So, Sister Hannah, why don't you come on and and, uh, Sister Hannah's graduated from school this year. It's all right. Let's get her here. Let's just have a quick. We lay our hands on Hannah and just ask that you would just touch her and strengthen her, Lord. And we pray that you would just give her, Lord, that strength that she needs. We just curse this sickness because we know it doesn't come from you. And I commit her into your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Brother David, we'll let you help Hannah there get back to her feet. Just say a word for Han- a word of prayer for Hannah. All right, she'll be fine. She's been having the, the problems with fainting there and and uh, just weakness getting back on her feet there. So we'll just trust that the Lord will give her strength back. Mitchell, why don't you come on and we'll. <clears throat> Mitchell has graduated and received his associate's degree on his way to nursing, right? I would shake your hand if I could. But we just trust that the Lord will bless you and guide you. And uh, remember Jeremiah chapter 29, it's written for you. And uh, trust that God will guide you to that future that he knows all, all about. May the Lord richly bless you. Let's give Mitchell a hand. There. <clears throat> Sister Caroline, why don't you come on up and we'd like to give Caroline a Bible as well. We are proud of your accomplishments and excited about where God's going to take you. What's next for you? College? What are you going to study? Really? Wonderful. God bless you. Read it. And may the Lord guide you. Let's stand to our feet this morning.
Let's take a little reading from the scripture. We're going to be looking in John chapter 15. John the 15th chapter. I had about five or six texts that I wanted to read at the beginning of our service today, but I'll just take this one and then we'll, we'll work from there. John chapter 15 and the first verse. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. So purging the branch is different than removing the branch. He says that it might bring forth more fruit. Growth brings purging. Purging brings more fruit. But no fruit brings taking away. May the Lord add his blessing. You may be seated this morning. I appreciated your comments and the things that were said over last uh, the last couple of services and had some good conversations with people in relation to those uh, to those services and the, some of the comments that have been made and I want to just uh, it, the, the whole idea the whole concept of the the image of the Father and the image of God has kind of stayed with me a little bit so Bear with me as we move uh, to this. And if you think that uh, you're, you're a, a mom sitting there and think, well, Brother Barry's only going to talk about fathers, well, that's, that's not true. We'll, we'll eventually get there, but we have to do that in a very different way. Uh, that's for sure. But I wanted to just talk a little bit this morning about uh, the, the expectation that God has. And Jesus illustrates here in John chapter 15. The Father's expectation is for a full harvest. He's not just looking for a harvest. He's looking for a full harvest because he's willing to take the, the vineyard, of course, which we know is a type of the, the body of Christ. He's willing to look at that vineyard and say, this is good, but we're going to go for a greater good. We're going to go for more. We're going to go for more fruitfulness than what is, uh, what is, what is present. And that's what, a real, uh, that's what a real husbandman does when it comes to the vineyard. He knows how far that he can push. He knows what he can actually uh, have produced in that vineyard. And so he's willing to go all that way. So the expectation of God is that uh, this, this harvest will produce mature sons. He's looking for maturity in the sons of God. There, there is in the hearts of the sons of God, I believe today, nothing that says, you know what, we, we want to build our own kingdom and we want to have our own way and we want to have uh, this idea of I'm better than you or I'm bigger than you or I'm more successful than you or my church is better than your church. I, I will honestly tell you, there's nothing left in my heart that wants to go there. There's nothing in my heart that wants to outdo anybody else. There's the, the thing that's left in my left in my heart. The thing that uh, uh, that that I think about more than anything else is, for for God to produce in me what He wants to see, what He what He knew was in me from the very beginning, 
And whatever it takes to get there, Lord, have your way to do that. Whatever he needs to purge away so that he can produce something great that he's proud to take into the kingdom, that meets his expectation, I'm willing to let him do that. And I think when we, when we begin to think that way, then a lot of our one-upmanship or our uh, ideas of getting ahead, our ambitions, they really dissolve very quickly because what we accomplish in this earth, the vast majority of it, we're going to leave behind, right? And so the only thing that we take as our character, the thing we leave behind is our legacy. Everything else really is just fluff. It's just, just stuff you have to maintain. And so therefore, uh, there's nothing left in my heart that says, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I want to I become bigger in this earth. I want to excel more. I want to have more money or bigger house or whatever else that, that really doesn't enthuse me. It, those are necessities of life. And that's about it. They are necessities of life. You have to have a place to live and you've got to have food to eat and a car to drive and that's it. But my passion is not for that. My interest is really not built on that. or my, my, uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. That's the way I, that's the way I view it. I, I believe that the plan is the, the plan of God as we know it in very simplistic terms is, is simply to remove or extricate the bride from the earth at, in, in God's timing, and that's our expectation as well. You had to be careful about expectations because if you, if you sow the wrong expectation in the hearts of the people, they get distracted very quickly. You can focus on, uh, you can focus on churches and gifts and building and uh, empire, uh, empire building and all the rest. You can focus on that, and the people can get very easily diverted into putting their energy into that. That would be the wrong expectation for people. The right expectation is that this is, the, this is I believe, what we're, what we're witnessing and what we're experiencing in our world is a world falling apart that's designed to loosen everything up, to free a bride, to make a final step from here into glory. Amen. I believe that's what we're seeing. In a very, I'm, I'm saying it very simply. There's all this politics and all the other stuff that's going on and all the other, uh, all the other negative news that we have to deal with continually. Uh, I mean, there's just, we're, we're bombarded with it. Frankly, we're very tired of it. I don't know about you, but I'm very tired of it. And, and thinking about all the things that lay ahead and all the, all the, uh, you know, the, the confusion that's out there. And, and certainly in a world like we live in, uh, confusion is a characteristic of our world. You can imagine what it must have been like in Noah's day. When you have somebody over here saying, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. And you have somebody over here saying, thus saith whatever, this is not going to happen. And people are left in the middle. People throw their hands up in the air. And a lot of people just, you know, it, it's just, it really, confusion is probably one of the better words to describe it. We live in a similar kind of a setting, wouldn't you agree? And so therefore, you have to, you have to make sure that you're hearing the right thing so that your faith is right, so your expectation will be right. Your expectation has got to be in the same direction as God's expectation. He's looking for mature sons of God. We, we believe that God is going to take the mature sons of God and daughters of God off the face of the earth. And this is the removing, this is the catching away of God's people, the rapturing of God's people from this kingdom into his kingdom. That's what's going on. And our expectation has to be right. And so therefore we have been brought out to be brought in. Right? We've been brought out of the world to be brought into another kingdom. We have been chosen to be changed. How many would agree? We have been selected uh, to be translated. 
And all of those things are in the process of happening now. And uh, God, has, uh, God has allowed us great insight and, and great privilege in this sense of knowing exactly what it is that, uh, that, uh, that lays ahead of us. God's given us great privilege to know just exactly what lays ahead of us. We don't know exactly what form it's going to take. We don't know how long it's going to take or how many steps we have to take until we take our last one. But God's given us great privilege and great insight to understand the time we're living in and where all of this is taking us. How many would say amen? Now, <clears throat> Brother Brandon makes a comment here in 1959. He said, we would ask that you would bless this little church today, pastors, deacons, board, members, strangers that's gathered in our gates here. We are grateful for fellowship hearing someone say that they drove many miles for the service. Truly the scripture is made manifest when it said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto you, unto me. And we know, Lord, that thy church is not in the majority this morning. The true believers are in the minority. But someday, Lord, you will take that minority to yourself, and that's the hour that we long for. I thought that was a fitting statement for where we're living in. Now, Brother Branham also makes this comment, and he says, uh, so the church is not in its right state yet. We have to remember, this is 1959, we had to remember that it's not matured, so we just have to linger and do the best we can. So in other words, there'll be a time space here, and in that time space, God's going to produce exactly what he's, what he's, what he's longing for, what he's, what he's intending to produce, and God's going to do that. And there's no one can bring it to maturity, only the Holy Spirit, as we listen to it. And I don't believe it'll ever come by man, it'll have to come by God. I don't believe, as Brother Branham says, I don't believe it'll ever come by CNN. I don't believe it'll ever come by, uh, you know, your, your, your work. I don't believe it'll ever come by the Internet. I don't believe it'll come by any of that. God has, God has ordered it in such a way that we come together still today and hear the word of God, despite uh, the fact that we have the message and we can listen to that. We come together in, the spirit, in spirit and in truth and gather together in a place like this so that the Holy Spirit can move among us uh, and, and he can correct us and he can allow us to hear the right things so that our faith will be right and that our expectation will be right so that we can be ready when, when this hour comes. And he says that comes by God. God instituted that order and God brought his people together. God gave ministry to the people as a gift and God allows all of that to happen so that you can come to a place of maturity. You understand he's looking at the church here and he said the church is not in its right state yet. Church is not in its right state. The brother man refers to the church collective here. He doesn't separate church and bride until the first seal. Uh, and then he, then he makes that separation. He says, well, we have to remember this church all in the same field. It's all growing towards the same end. And the husbandman has an expectation for that growing until there is an ingathering of all of the wheat that God has grown through the ages. Are you with me? Gather the wheat into my barn and gather the tares for the uh, burning over here. So there's an in-gathering and there's an out-gathering. There is a gathering of God's people in the last day, but it's not going to happen until that field is ripe. It's not going to happen until that field is mature. And when that field is mature, then he's going to take that bride away. The, some of the characteristics of that maturity is what we're talking about. We're talking about the attributes of fatherhood and uh, the things that go with that. And I want to deal with that uh, this morning here. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And therefore the world knows, knows us not because it knew him not. And beloved, now are we the sons of God. 
And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this maturing process brings us to the place where we actually look like him. Not with a beard and not with a robe on, but we look at him, look like him in his character. And every man that hath this hope in, in, in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So we shall see him as he is when that time comes. Now, let me just, let me just uh, preamble just a little bit longer here. Uh, Brother Branham talks about this idea when, when we refer to um, uh, this, uh, this word image here. John, I got a bit of an echo here that I can hear. When we talk about this uh, subject of, of fatherhood and, and image, they go together. I, I read a very interesting article that was written by John Calvin back in the 1600s back in that time period, and uh, he, he, was, he was correlating or bringing together this whole idea of how that God made Adam in his own image. And uh, he was talking about the, the physical image that Adam stood in because he was not really like any other animal. And so it was a unique creation, but it was also the spirit man that uh, God had created uh, in his image. And there was attributes of Adam that resembled, there were things about Adam that resembled the creator because he was made in his image. And it was very interesting how uh, Calvin summarized those things back in that day. And I find that that idea, that spiritual idea of the image of the Father, it carries on down through in the teaching. And here's Brother Branham talking about the same thing. Or Brother Branham often will say it in a very different way. And he, and he refers to this uh, little story that he tells about, uh, you know, that little eaglet who was born as an eaglet and somebody stole it from the, or took it from the nest and, and raised it with a bunch of chickens. So the only, the only uh, identity that this eagle had uh, was as a chicken because it was raised with chickens. Everybody around it spoke chicken. Uh, you know, this, this, uh, this eagle was feeding like chickens feed. Uh, was trying his very best to be a chicken. And there was no chicken in him at all. There wasn't an ounce of chicken in him. And uh, Brother Branham tells a story, and you're familiar with it. He said, I got that little story about that eagle walking with the hens and the chickens because he was hatched out and born there, but he never did just like them chickens. He never did feel just like them chickens. And when his mammy came by and hollered, he heard a voice that sounded awful good to him. Because remember, he was an eagle to begin with. And he just had to come to find, he had to come to find himself to find his place. So remember now what it was. Brother Adam uses this illustration here. It was the voice of another eagle that, that helped him to identify who he really was. That's in a sense, it's unexplainable how that, that little eagle knew all of a sudden everything that was, that was incorrect about this picture and he knew everything that was correct about this picture that he was after all not a chicken and he didn't have to try to be a chicken anymore. He truly was an eagle and uh, it, it, you know every, everything, in a sense, everything about him clicked. He came to himself, if you like. And everything, like he says right here, he just had to come to find himself to find his place. But you know what? It was not in that eagle to do that himself. He needed something from outside in order to make that happen within him. And in the same way that, uh, you know, where you were or where you are today, it'll never be just you figuring it out or you becoming something because, uh, you know, you made a decision. There has to be something from the outside. There has to be another higher power. 
that all of a sudden speaks in a way that contacts who you really are on the inside. And praise God, that's exactly what the message does. That's what the voice of God actually does. It speaks in such a way that it contacts something that only God knows is there. And when it does, it activates or it quickens that, that real identity, that real person you are. And it allows that person to now live and express itself as what it really is, which is an eagle. But that's the way every believer is. You wasn't born for this world. You were created in the image of God to be a son of God. And you don't belong in this chicken yard out here. You're an eagle. So until that eagle actually spread his wings and got out of that chicken yard, he felt himself bound and limited in what he could actually be, even though God, uh, God made him an eagle. And in the same way that you and I, uh, you know, we, we, we live in this world and we live in this body. We're still limited, even though there's, there's a part of us and, and a very real part of us that wants to get out of here, that wants to leave here and wants to go. But we're limited by this body and we have to live in this old barnyard of a world here where all the, all the manure and all the, the dirt is and all the other things that are here and we put up with it daily. We put up with it constantly. You got to imagine how that eagle must have felt until he was able to spread his wings and actually get out of there. Uh, there was a voice that was continually calling because that mom finally found that little one that was lost and to be able to pull him right out of that barnyard into the place that he belonged. Let me tell you, that's what this message is all about. And that's what sitting in church all the time is about. It's not just an exercise in, uh, you know, filling up your Sunday morning and, uh, you know, spacing out times at restaurants here. It's more about God actually calling you out of this, out of this uh, barnyard and into the place that you really belong. You're not meant to be here. You're not meant to act and look and sound like a chicken. You're not meant to, to have to deal with all the dirt around you here. You're meant for a better place. You're meant for a higher place. You're meant for a place that's eternal. You're meant for a body that does not uh, deteriorate with the earth. You're created as a son of God in the image of God and you don't belong in this chicken yard here. The Bible tells us over and over again that you know, we are made in God's image here and this is the way God's design actually expressed itself. And then Adam, of course, as we said in Genesis 5 last Sunday, Adam here, he, he makes a son in his own image, which is Seth. And there's something about, uh, you know, just even the natural part, and I, I don't want to dwell too long on the natural part, but there is a, uh, you know, there's a natural part of uh, a father that's passed on and passed down from one generation to another. They have attributes, whether they like it or not. They have attributes and they have qualities that carry on. It's really interesting to see uh, your children manifest um, like Lucas. I've said before, he manifests things that my my parents had uh, in their lives, and he's he never he never knew them. He never was never, never around long enough, early enough to to uh, to be like them. And uh, you know, it's 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 just an amazing thing. Uh, it's just an amazing thing. Even uh, all my boys, they, they, in some way or another, they reflect the attributes of their, of their grandparents. Um, <clears throat> I, could, I mean, I could take up the whole service here and tell you things, but you didn't know my, my father and mother, which is too bad. But uh, they, they certainly do. And so there's, there's a, an unpreventable exchange of attributes that, that are passed down. And passed down from one generation to another one. Now, <clears throat> I want to I want to um, just uh, have you look and notice in the scripture here for a moment here in Jeremiah chapter thirty-one. 
This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, that I will put my law in their inward parts. And I will <clears throat> write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews chapter 10, Paul takes the same thing. These are a people who are covenant, people who are bound by covenant that God makes with them, knowing that even though they're made in the image of God, there's been a problem or a flaw that occurred in the Garden of Eden. And uh, Satan came in and marred the picture there. So God says, I'm going to covenant with these people and uh, I'm going to take the law of God and put it in their hearts because it's not possible for man now to find his own way. It's not possible for man to legislate or govern sin out of existence. How many would agree? You can't pass enough laws to deal with the sin nature. You, you, can't have, you can't have a society that all of a sudden makes a decision or elects leaders that says, all right, everybody, we're going to live by the Bible. That's the way we're going to govern this land. We're going to live by the scripture. And everything the scripture says, that's what we're going to do. You know what we're going to have? You're going to have somebody right away who says, but I don't believe the Bible. And, and, and you're, not, you're not going to have that. But you know what? God over time, when you think about this, God over many, many hundreds of years, even thousands of years, allowed, allowed uh, humankind, allowed mankind to have enough respect for the word of God and the presence or the concept of God to, to live their lives bound by a moral order. There was a natural moral order that people lived by until the end times when it becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah and it comes like the days of Noah. Spurgeon said, the gospel, he said, is like a caged lion. He said, it does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. The gospel will do its work. And in many ways, the gospel influence, uh, you know, our society, it influence our culture. It influenced lots of things in our world. And uh, it, it, it's an amazing thing. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, it was after the Scopes trial, which is the, the trial that dealt with the subject of evolution, that uh, all of a sudden that, uh, you know, there were, there were many people who, in a sense, the fundamentalist people became uh, very defensive about things because uh, there, were, there were a lot of people who turned around and said, hey, listen, the Bible may be true for you, but it isn't true for me. And, and as a result of that, we want to make sure that you understand that you can believe the Bible and you can hold on to your biblical truths. But we don't want to have anybody pretend it is to be considered knowledge or fact. And that's quite a difference in our society. That's quite a difference in a way of thinking. Because what they were actually saying is that uh, we're going to take the, the things of God, we're going to take things that are uh, moral and, and uh, virtuous, and we're going to put these over into, the, into another column. It's not going to be the way that everybody, everybody lives their life now according to the scripture. We're going to take this over here as an optional column that if people believe the Bible, they want to live this way, they want to live morally, then you know what, that's their choice. But society, in a sense, has moved away from the idea of using the Bible as an absolute or the, the concept of morality as, as, a, as a directive now in our society. They've moved away from that. 
So now, as a result of that, everything, everything is up for grabs, right? Abortion becomes something that's legal. Uh, stem cell research, homosexuality, all the other transgender ideas, all of that. All of those things now, they, they move into the mainstream, and society actually moves to protect those ideas because people want to believe them. And they're not challenged by Scripture anymore because Scripture is not in any way respected as an absolute within a society, as something by which we judge everything that happens. It used to be. It used to be things were judged by something like the Bible, a higher order, a higher call. They were judged by, by, by the Scripture so that we can say, all right, you know, this, this is pleasing in the eyes of God. This is not. This is right or this is wrong. There's no more sense of what's right and what's wrong anymore. Right in in the in the traditional sense, and so therefore there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of thinking that goes on where uh, where where Christians are considered uh, an extreme group or an extreme ideology or an extreme thought process over here, and we become, as Brother Branham said, we become a minority, not a majority, in our country. And he's saying something that's very important to me. It, it, it's, it's like you don't, have, you don't have the majority of people backing you anymore. This is all based on how we interpret, uh, you know, the views of people in society and so forth, law and uh, politics and all the rest of it. That's how we'll govern. That's how we'll manage. That's how we'll legislate. So if people feel like that they have a, uh, you know, a, uh, a desire to do something, if they feel like they have a, a thought that they want to do, they want to take, you know, the, the Bible out of schools or they want to take prayer away or whatever else, and if we want to substitute that and put something else in there, uh, then it's, it's not governed by any kind of a, a standard or an absolute. The removing of an absolute would have to necessitate collapse within a society. If a society is built on a solid foundation and you destroy the foundation, how is that society going to stand? Right? And so this is where we've come to. And to me, this is a prophet that's not only uh, preparing us for the change of our body, but he's preparing us to live in a, in, a, in, a, in a society or in a world that lacks a solid foundation anymore. Like I've said to you before, and I'll say it a dozen times again, We have no idea how great a thing it is to have an absolute whereby we can check every single thing we think or believe or what somebody else says to us. What somebody else tries to project, we can look at it through the eyes of an absolute and we can judge it by that. Now, hey, you've got to believe in the absolute, right? You've got to believe in the scripture and you've got to believe in the message of the hour. You've got to believe that the message is of God, right? And when you believe that, you can judge or you can test everything by that in order to know the validity or the strength or the accuracy of it or the truth of it. Hey, listen, folks, truth is the thing that's powerful. Truth is the thing that's going to set you free. Truth is the thing that shows you where you stand. And when we know what is truth, we can judge everything by it to find out whether what we're doing and where we're going and what we're saying and what we're doing is actually right or not, pleasing to God or not, or in line with God's program or not, in line with God's mind or not. And if we can do that, then we can absolutely know uh, just exactly what, uh, what, what, what is pleasing to God and a way to regulate and conduct our lives. Without it, you're like everybody else out there who wants to elect a politician who will give you what the desires of your heart really are. And I will tell you, that's a dangerous place to be when people live by the desires of their heart and the desires of the flesh. Now, 
Brother Branham said in the Power of Transformation in 1965, he said, Paul, he said, was a local church member, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal. Down the street he went with his great defying spirit in him that he knew more than any of them. He had a great defying spirit. He's not afraid to get in your face and argue with you about things that you hold to be true. What happened on his road to Damascus, he got a bunch of people who were believing God's word, and on his road down there, he was stricken down, he heard a message. And it transformed him from a church member and a church goer to a prophet of God who wrote the word of God in the New Testament from a church member to a saint. And remember, the voice on the road to Damascus did not create that in Paul. It rather unleashed that in Paul. It quickened that which already laid in Paul. Isn't that right? So Brother Branham uses this analogy many times where he talks about David and uh, the statue of David that's found in Italy there. And uh, he, he, Michelangelo made the comment. He said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Only the sculptor can know. Only the sculptor can know really what lays in that piece of rock. And he was willing to carve until he set him free. And that's exactly, to me, that's exactly what God is doing presently, currently in our lives is to carve and to peck and to hit and strike and shape and mold and rub until he gets exactly what he had in his mind in the very beginning, right? God is doing that in my life. God is doing that in your life. God is doing that among our young people. God does that in children in their formative years. God does that through fathers and mothers. That's why the Bible says that that fathers should not provoke their children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. And Paul says that because you can do that. You can provoke your children to wrath. You You can make your children fed up. You can make your children rebellious by your conduct. You can make your children to be very uh, anti-church because of your legalism. Isn't that right? Fathers can do this. Fathers have a way uh, of doing And Paul does not say, now you fathers and mothers or parents, uh, provoke not your children to wrath. He deals with fathers here. And he says, provoke not uh, uh, a spirit of wrath within your children there and anger. It, it's, it's a really important thing for, I think, for fathers to learn to answer questions that their children might ask. Why do we have to wear our hair a certain way? Why do men have to wear their hair a certain way and get a haircut and all the rest of it? And it's like the father one time who took his son out fishing one day and he said his son was, you know, a young guy and he was just all excited about being with his father that day and, and uh, he started to ask his father a question. He said, Dad, he says, how come this boat doesn't sink? Why does it float? And he says, I don't really know, son. A little while later, the boy asked him, he said, Dad, i got a question for you. He said, how do fish breathe underwater? I says, I don't really know, son. Then finally, he asked him another question. He said, Dad, he said, the sky is so blue. He says, why is it so blue? And he says, I don't really know, son. So after a little while, the boy was thinking about this, and he, he finally asked his dad the question. He said, he didn't want to make his father upset by asking all the questions. And he said, Dad, do you mind me asking all these questions? He said, of course not, son. He said, how else are you going to learn? It's important for fathers to take time to to answer their kids' questions. But I think it's equally, or perhaps not equally, but it's more important for fathers to take time to, uh, to, to establish truths in the hearts of their children 
Because fathers hold a position of having the God image to their children. Somehow, inherently, children know that God's not a female. Sorry. But children inherently know that God's not a female. So God allows the man who's made in his image to represent that God image to their children. And therefore, I think it's important for fathers to have an answer. And if they don't know the answer right off the top of their head, because kids can ask you some really good questions, to go and to find out what the answers to those questions are and give it to kids on their level so that they can understand. Because you can't say to a kid, well, you know what really happened in the Garden of Eden? Well, son, let me tell you what. A prophet explained that really well. Let me give you five or six sermons that take care of that whole issue. And if he's four years old and probably doesn't know how to really do this, uh, he's going to have a time with that answer. On their level, it's good to be able to explain those things and then move on up as their, as their understanding changes. Now, watch what Brother Bram says in the masterpiece. He said, but this Michelangelo, he said it cost him something to do that, to, to make this great sculpture. He was a great man, cost a big part of his life because he was many, many years in carving that out. Just took a rock, marble, kept carving it. And only the sculptor himself has in mind what he's trying to do. You might walk up and say, well, what are you pecking at this rock for? To the outsider who doesn't know what's in his heart, it's nonsense. But to the man, the sculptor himself, he's got a vision in his mind what he's trying to make, what he's trying to reproduce, what he has in mind, in the, what he has in mind for that monument. So when, that, when the sculptor has the vision, hey, listen, nobody else may really know. Uh, the, the, the people around may not know. The rock itself may not know, right? I'm speaking to some rocks here. We may not always understand why God is pecking at me the way he is. He may not understand why the pastor all of a sudden has pulled out his father, uh, father hammer and, and just working with fathers and working on fathers here. Sometimes we don't understand what that's for. But let me tell you, we're not the designers. We're not the carvers. We're not the one that had the initial vision. This is not your vision. This is not your program. This is not, you may say, well, it's not what you signed up for. When you gave your heart to Christ and surrendered at Calvary's Hill, let me tell you, this is what you signed up for. This is, what you, this is what you gave your life for, that he would take it over and he would bring out of you what laid in there that you didn't know was there. And he's got a vision in his mind, what he's trying to make and what he's trying to produce here. And that's the reason that he's digging it out of the rocks. That's the reason he's digging it out of the rocks. Now he said, let's turn the page of Michelangelo and close the book. He said, let's open another book uh, and read of the great sculptor, the Almighty he said, who before there was a world and before the foundation was laid, he had in his mind what he wanted and he wanted to make a man in his own image and he wanted to make something in reality of what was a vision to him, what was in his thinking. God wanted to make a capstone bride in this last day. And so he turns to that section of his great Lamb's Book of Life and opens it up and says, now, I've got a lot of rocks, I've got a lot of dirt to work with, now let me just roll up my sleeves and begin to carve out uh, this people that I want to have in the last day who are actually going to sit on top of the pyramid and they're going to unite with Christ invisibly in the last day and they're going to go home without death. I want to begin to carve on her. This was a different kind of carving than any other age because every other age went away of the grave. But this God had to carve uh, within you a capacity to receive a message that actually had the power to change your body and take you into eternity without going through the way of the grave. How many can say amen? 
God, had, God, God knew that there would have to be in you a, a capacity to receive this message and for that message to have its effect. It's not good enough for you just to be around the message and the hearing of it and for you to have it in your car or on your phone or in your library. It, it's got to be something that's in your heart and working and producing the thing that God envisioned for you. It's got to be there and it's got to be working, right? And this is what Brother Branham's talking about here, that, uh, that this last day he said uh, Michael, Michelangelo did that in the natural. He said God's doing that in the, in the spiritual realm. All right, hold with me. He said, now, that doesn't mean that we have to grow a long beard in the art, as the artists picture him having. We don't necessarily have to be that to reflect his physical image. God is not asking us to look like that. He's not asking us, excuse me, to live like that. But we must in our souls reflect his spirit image and his manner of life. I believe it's a reflection of Christ in a human being, for we are members of his body, and we bear his image. I mean, that's the creation story, right? We bear his image. And what kind of an image was he? He came not to be some great somebody, yet he was, but he came to be a servant. And he came not to be ministered to, but to minister. This is what, he, this is what he, he came to do. He said, I'm among you as one that serveth. He says, let me show you. And he helped redefine what real leadership and headship was. And he, and he went to the Last Supper and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and girded himself. And he knelt down with a basin of water in front of all the disciples and began to wash their feet. And he said, I, I hear among you that there are arguments about who's the greatest and who's the greatest disciple and who wants all the honor. And he says, let me tell you this. The way in, in God's kingdom, my father's kingdom, the way up is down. And he that humbles himself should be exalted. And he says, it's one thing to know that, but he says, let me model it for you. Let me actually show you how this is done. And he kneels before all of them. And he, Peter, you know, being outraged at this and, and, and certainly shocked at this, he says, no, he says, you'll never wash my feet. And he says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So there's some sort of a connection by, where, where, where when we humble ourselves, when we, when, we, uh, when we conduct ourselves in this way, there's a connection that we make with, with people. There's a connection that we make with God. And there's a connection that, that is an ongoing thing. I'll tell you, I was coming down the road this morning and I was thinking about how it would be really nice for us to have a communion service. We haven't had one in a while because it's been a little bit difficult for us to you know, be able to manage that. But as soon as we can, I would really like to be able to do that because I miss that. There's something mysterious. There's something unusual about it. Number one, Jesus said, happy are ye if you do it. So there's a blessing in it just by doing it. And then there's, this, there's a, a thing of just humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves one to another and say, uh, you know, being able to say to your brother, I'm not too great to bow down and wash your feet. To say to a sister, I'm not above you. I'm not in a class above you or somehow. Because you know what? We all meet at the foot washing pan. We all meet there. And I think that's a good lesson. That's a good experience for us to have, not just once, but to have ongoing. Because the devil will try to instill all kinds of things in your mind. But remember now, again, now I want to just come back to this here, that, that the, the goal here is not to emulate Jesus 
as the son of God, the one whose body was transfigured, uh, the one who, you know, uh, turned water into wine. Nowhere do we find that, you know, those are requirements for us as Christians in order to qualify as Christians. But rather to reflect his nature. That even as great a person as what he was, he maintained a connection and a sense of obedience to the Father's will. I only do that which the Father shows me, right? So when you look at great men, and you look at what they did, they had, a, they, they had to maintain a sense of connection with God's will first and do that. And all the other things that followed after that, you know, all the other honors or accolades, all of that, well, you know, that was secondary. But the primary thing really was to be in contact with the commission that God's given me. Most of you are familiar with General MacArthur. And he did some great things. He was certainly a controversial figure. He did some great things. But he made this statement. He said, by profession, I am a soldier. And take pride in that fact. But I am prouder, infinitely prouder to be a father. A soldier destroys in order to build. A father only builds and never destroys. Let me say it again. A soldier destroys in order to build. But a father only builds and never destroys. The one has the potentialities of death and the other embodies the creation of life. It is my hope that my son, when I am gone, will remember me not from the battle, but in the home, repeating with him our simple daily prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a man who's in contact with the commission God's given him as a father. I think that's a great thing. God's provided way. I do not think the war will be a missile warfare, Brother Branham says, but I think it'll be a spiritual warfare that'll come in and just take the nation over and put them to sleep till they get in and get a hold. I think that's the real warfare. That's a real attack that goes on is where somebody can come in and redefine the values that we stood upon for hundreds of years. And now all of a sudden in a short generation, 40 or 50 years, look at what's changed. Come on. You folks that are, that are blowing out at least 50 candles, bear with me for a minute. You folks know that 50 years ago, our world was very different than what it is now. And in a very short time span, after, what, what is America, 200 and something years old now. And, and in 50 years, look at how, how drastically things have changed. How radical things have become. In our time, so much so that you, if you still hold on to those, uh, you know, uh, the sensible values and common sense that was born in you by the example of your father and grandfather and all of those, uh, all of those uh, folks that came before you, now that is considered not only old-fashioned and out of date, but it's considered irrelevant. It's like the guy who's riding the scooter on a street and holding up the traffic, right? I did it the other day. I thought I laughed when I did it because I had given that example in the church. And here was a guy up in front. The traffic's moving at 10 miles an hour up the road, two-lane road, nowhere to go. I'm always interested in what you're supposed to do legally not to get in trouble with the law, not to get in trouble with God in situations like that. But in this situation, it was a windy, curvy country road. Got to bear with it. Finally, we get to the place where traffic picks up, and I come to the head of the line, and there he is, a guy with a helmet as big as a, uh, a barrel, and uh, he's sitting on the scooter, and, you know, he's just... 
at 15 miles an hour and I'm holding back there and I'm thinking, you know, what should I do? If I roll down my window, what would I say? And the thing, that I, you know, being a, a true southerner that I am, I just wanted to roll down my window and say, bless your heart, buddy. Bless your heart. <clears throat> Christianity, in a sense, has become uh, irrelevant. It, it's become something that most people just want to push aside. They really don't have, want to have to deal with it. It's in the way in a lot of ways. And when you minimize something like Christianity and you, you trivialize the Bible, then, then you see the result of that. I mean, I don't need to explain this very much. You can see the result of that in the culture you're living in. And you wonder why we have the issues that we have. You wonder why, uh, you know, we have uh, the outcomes of elections that we have. Where men, uh, you know, they, they, they fail to, to really be in touch with the commission that God gave them. And, and to change the world that they're living in. Let me take you for a minute into the heart of David Livingston. I, 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 I relate to David Livingston. I just, I just think he was a great guy. And, and he did some absolutely outstanding things. David Livingston was a Scottish missionary. And uh, born, uh, born, in, born in, uh, in Scotland and eventually went to Africa in 1840 at the age of 27. He was a missionary. When he was a boy, nine years old, he had memorized a complete Psalm 119. And he was enamored with the fact that every verse in there mentioned how that uh, the word of God was a sacred thing. And he wanted to, uh, you know, teach me, Lord, teach me the precepts of thy word. And every, every, every sentence of Psalm 19 talked about how David wanted to know more of God's word and wanted to have a passion for God's word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's found in Psalm 119. And at nine years old, Livingston had, had memorized the whole Psalm uh, 119 and, and, and just committed it to heart. He just had a passion to be able to share the gospel with other people. And, and born in, in Scotland, he eventually uh, became a minister, finished his schooling. He was a doctor as well as a missionary, and he wanted to go to Africa. And there was, had been very few missionaries, really, that went to Africa at that particular time and, and uh, did, did the work that Livingston was going to do, but he traveled across Africa. He actually walked across the Kalahari Desert, uh, which is no small trek, and uh, traveled uh, up and down the Zambezi River and found Victoria Falls. They say he was the first uh, European ever to set eyes on uh, Victoria Falls. The falls had another name when uh, Livingston came to visit there, but he, it was so fascinating to him, he named it after Queen Victoria, uh, who was the reigning monarch in his time, and so that's why it's called Victoria Falls today. And... and and Livingston, if you know anything about his life, he, he went there and as a young missionary, he got off the boat and came up through the Zambezi River in Tanzania, which was then uh, Tanganyika, and, and came up through the area there. And he, say, he, wrote back, he wrote back to his family and he said, I have in my mind, he said, the image of a thousand fires, the smoke curling from a thousand fires in every African village. And he said, my heart is smitten. And he traveled all around in Africa and he preached the gospel and he mapped the country, he mapped the interior. Uh, Livingston had no easy life. Uh, there was a, a point where a, a lion jumped on him and messed up his shoulder and as a result of that he lost the use of one of his arms. He was going through the jungle and there was a broken off branch that was in front of him and it struck him right in the eye. He became blinded in one of his eyes. He was well-respected and well-known among the, the villagers wherever he went in Africa. And, and finally, after so many years of, of duty and missionary work, he went back to England. And by then, he became a real celebrity. 
uh, you know, he was known because he had sent back these reports and these different writings and, and drawings and so forth and these stories. He was an instant celebrity when he set foot shore, uh, on the shores back in England again. And people, the king and queen wanted to hear from him and then all kinds of groups wanted to hear from him. Every missionary society wanted Livingston to come and speak about his work in there. And, and as he was there, just a very short period of time, he said to his wife, who had contracted typhoid, by the way, in her time in Africa, and uh, uh, she was back there on a convalescence uh, season. For, actually, she actually stayed for five years. And uh, Livingston said, I still see the smoke of a thousand fires, he said, in these villages in Africa, curling towards the sky. And he said, I just have to go back. Instead of taking all of these invitations to go and speak in all these different society functions, he said, I still have that burning in my heart. She told him, she said, David, just go back. And so he got on the ship and turned right around after a very short time and left England and went back again. He never saw his wife for another five years because she was sick with typhoid. Matter of fact, when she came back after five years, got on the ship and sailed back to Africa, she caught the disease instantly again and died within a couple of years and left him a widower. And David Livingston, in his, in his years there, he just, he just had done such a great work for God and just with real passion. And he had uh, navigated, you know, through a lot of the continent of Africa, all the way from, uh, you know, the south of, of Zambia, which would have been uh, Zimbabwe, and from that uh, all the way uh, where he landed in South Africa and came all the way through and walked literally across the continent and up and down the length of the continent. Back in those days when there were not good roads or anything else, preached the gospel the entire way and in his short life of 60 years younger than I was finally he died Uh, as a matter of fact let me leave add another little point here that he had not been heard from for so long in his trek and his travels around Africa the New York Post sent another writer to find Livingston in Africa and it was Mr. Stanley Mr. Stanley was a great big fellow, six and a half feet tall, and he was a pure atheist. And finally, he traveled around in Africa and found out where Livingston was, came to a village and, and where they said that he was living, came up to the hut where Livingston was, and uh, uh, he, this is where he made the famous comment. He said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Now, what was interesting about that is when Livingston was in Africa because he had been ravaged by so much disease and so forth, he was on a regular medicine that that kept things under control in his body. And somebody had stolen his medicine. And he suffered greatly because he had no medication at all. And he just prayed and he said, Lord, he said, "When when, when I gave my heart to you, he said, you remember I said to you, and this was his prayer out of desperation, because he's in the middle of Africa, and there's not even a CVS in the middle of Africa in the 1800s. And he prayed and he said to God, he said, Lord, when I gave my heart to you, I said to you that I would go anywhere and do anything you asked me to do as long as you're with me all the time. And he said, that was my prayer. And he's in this hut, in this village. We don't know the name of it. And he's praying to God and reminding God of the promise that he made years ago. And he said, Lord, I need help. I need healing or I need medicine. I need some, some kind of help somehow, some way. And he says, I just have to give this to you. He says, As I'm going to die without this medicine. And I just have to leave it to you. The very next day, Stanley comes to this village. And he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And he says, yes, I am. Who are you? And Stanley tells him who he is. And he says, I have two things to tell you. Number one, he says, I am an atheist. 
And I want you to make sure you don't waste your time trying to convert me to Christianity. That's number one. Livingston says, what's number two? Number two is, he said, when I was coming here, somebody handed me this bag. He said, I think it has medicine in it. And they said, give it to Dr. Livingston when you see him. And it was the medicine that he needed. Four months later, Stanley was baptized in one of the rivers just by his association of being around with Livingston for so long and traveling with him and seeing how he ministered to the natives there without, uh, without any reward or any kind of uh, recompense at all. He became a strict abolitionist because he saw how badly and how poorly the, uh, the African people were treated in the slave trade and all of that was going on in the time of Livingston. And, and Livingston was very strong, very, very adamant about his uh, beliefs back in that, in that day. Stanley accompanied him for a number of years and finally went back and wrote the story. As a matter of fact, he wrote two volumes of a biography of, of Livingston, which are a fascinating read today. But Livingston, when he died, in the little village where he lived, he had a, an associate. Um, he had a, an African brother who accompanied him everywhere he went. Big African fellow. And when he died, that African fellow, and I'm just trying to think of his name here, when he, when he passed away, they had a ceremony for Livingston because they decided they were going to send him back to England for his burial, and he is buried back in, in England today. But before they left, they did a surgery, and they removed his heart and buried it under a tree in the village where he lived because they said, we know his heart is in Africa. And they transported his body without the heart back to England and buried the rest of them there. To me, that's the sign of a man. That's the evidence of a man who knew exactly what his calling was and did not allow the circumstances or the physical limitations that he experienced to hinder what God had asked him to do. To me, Livingston was a real man. Now, let me stop for a minute. All of us would not be Livingstons, but let me tell you what we all have, all right? If you bear with me just for a moment here. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bible because you're going to need it in just a second here. In Genesis chapter 1, this is the, the, the scripture that we, we're hinging things on here. And God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping, uh, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So man was made in the image of God with dominion. Dominion is specifically given here over all the creatures that are under Adam. We come down here in verse 28, the same chapter, same verse, the same section. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it. So God made sure that in the creation of Adam, Adam had the capacity to have dominion. He gave him the quality of having dominion over the creation. But then he made sure that Adam understood it. He told him, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And every living thing that moves upon the face of the earth. The word dominion there is the Hebrew word radah, which means to rule or dominate or tread down or subjugate. So God made a man with dominion. I mean, I'm only reading what the scripture says. Are we okay? Everybody all right? This is what God did. He made a man with the ability to have dominion. Now, 
Let me tell you something. The fall happened after that Genesis chapter 1 verse that I just read. And the promise is in Malachi chapter 4. I would just want to remind you here. That one day man gets dominion back again in the way that Adam had it. Malachi 4. For behold a day coming. How many believe that Malachi 4 is a scripture that relates to the end time? All right, watch now. Behold, a day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. This has not happened yet. We're on our way to it. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall grow up, and grow as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And man will have dominion back over the creation again one day. It'll happen again one day. But now remember now that man is still created in the image of God with dominion. But now we had to be careful how we exercise that dominion. Because we do not have dominion like Adam did in the Garden of Eden, where Brother Branham said that Adam could speak and say, let this tree be taken up here and put over here. He didn't, he, Adam had that kind of control. We don't have that kind of control. If I did have that kind of control, I'd say, let's take this family and move them over here. Let's take that family and move them over here. Everybody get back to where they should be. It's just a little humor there. We don't have the kind of control or dominion that Adam had in the Garden of Eden. But yet we are made with this aspect or this characteristic of dominion because God put it in the man before the fall. So I want to trace this just for a moment here. I want you to, to follow with me here. In 1 Kings chapter 4, and you don't need to turn to this one. Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines unto the border of Egypt. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Watch what happens here. And Solomon's provisions for one day are these. The provisions for providing for his household were these. 30 measures of fine flour, three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 oxen out of the pasture, 100 sheep, besides hearts, roebucks, and fallow deer, and fatted fowl. Can you imagine the production that must have went on in Solomon's household? This has nothing to do with the point I'm trying to make. I just left it in here because I thought it was fascinating. For he had dominion over, watch, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipshah even to Aza, over all, the, over all the kings on this side of the river. Solomon actually had dominion over kings of other countries. And he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine, under his fig tree, even from Dan to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Dan to Beersheba is from the very bottom to the very top of Israel and the breadth of Israel as well. All of that Solomon had dominion over because Solomon's reign was a type of the millennium that we are going to have. And so God gave all the lands round about peace, and Israel had peace because one man exercised the right kind of dominion over his kingdom. This is a positive example of dominion. Now let me say this. That when you as a man exercise the right kind of dominion in your household, you're going to have a household of peace. 
You're going to have a better opportunity at peace when you rule your house well. When you rule your house with the right kind of dominion. Now let me tell you something. When men get the idea that somehow they have to be the, the one who clicks their finger and the woman has to meet every need and bow to every desire that this man has, there's probably not going to be peace long in that household. And all the women said, I knew Brother Barry would finally get around to our cause. When a man takes out his anger on his children and frustrates them and treats them unfairly or treats them impartially because he has the power to bless one and to ridicule the other one, let me tell you, there's not going to be peace in that household. My point is that when the right kind of dominion is exercised, there is peace round about. It didn't last forever in Solomon's reign, but God was giving us a little window into the concept of how that a man who exercises the right kind of dominion, he affects the world around him. All right? That's the idea. Now, I want you to turn to this one in Leviticus chapter 25, if you don't mind. And I wouldn't understand really if you did. Leviticus chapter 25. This is a very common story here. A description of the whole idea of the the law of Jubilee. You've You've heard it described many times. I want to isolate a little something here for you. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 41. There's laws given here related to the Jubilee. There's laws of the land starting in verse 25. There are laws of the poor brother, which is 35. is what we're dealing with. And the redemption of the poor brother and so forth. And I want you just to look at verse 41 just for time's sake. Then shall he depart from thee. The he is the person who falls in debt to you. And by the law of Jubilee, that man has to come and work for you for the, for the seven years remaining. Right? You understand, everybody understand the law of Jubilee. So he says that then when the trumpet sounds and that man is set free, he's, he's, already, he's already served you. Then he shall depart from thee, both he and his children with him, and shall return unto his own family, unto the possession of his father shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as bondmen. So I'm telling you now, God's saying, I'm telling you very specifically what happens when that trumpet blows. When that man has served his time, when he has paid the debt, and, and the debt is satisfied, you are to let him go. And let everything about him go. Let him go back to his family, his homeland, back to his tribe. 43, for thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but thou shalt fear thy God. Both thy bondman and thy bondmage, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall he buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, of the children of strangers that do sojourn among you, you shall, uh, you shall buy. And of their families that are with you, you shall beget in your land. They shall be your possession. And you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. And they shall be your bondmen forever. But over the children of Israel, you shall not rule one over another with rigor. This word rigor here, this idea of ruling over somebody with rigor, is that idea of, of dominion. You shall not have dominion over somebody who's been redeemed. So what God is dealing with here among the children of Israel is an attitude that people might have for somebody maybe who made a mistake and got in debt 
But they paid their debt. The debt's been satisfied. And now they're able to go free. Don't you, don't you treat him like a servant. Don't you treat him like somebody who's a lesser person than you are. Don't do that. You let them go. Let them go back to their lands. Let them go back to their family. Let them go back to their tribe. Let them go back and enjoy everything that, that, that I have for them. Because they are my servants. They are my children. Come on, saints of God. Think spiritual just for a minute now. I want you to think about this. That every one of us were born in sin. We were born in death, right? Every one of us needed to pay a price we couldn't pay. And so we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to slavery. And yet somebody, our Boaz, came and paid that price. And once we are redeemed, the devil cannot come back and claim you again and say, but you're really mine. Because you've been redeemed. And once you are redeemed, you are redeemed forever. Come on. You're redeemed forever. Even though Satan would like to bring up the old claims against you once again. They needed to stand there and say, nope, by the law of Leviticus 25 and the admonition that Moses gave the people here, they, you cannot bring me back into bondage again. You can't make me feel like a servant. I'm a free man and I absolutely have the right to go back and enjoy everything that's in the covenant between Israel and God and nobody can drag me back and nobody can bring me down to that level again. But I'd like to go a step further and say this. That sometimes there are people among us who make mistakes. And you know what we should not do as, as, as a free people? We should not make somebody feel bad because they make a mistake among us. Or somebody who gets sick and we all of a sudden say, oh, they must have sin in their life. They must have a problem there. You know, there's got to be something there, you know, or otherwise they wouldn't get sick. They wouldn't be like me. And you're no different than the guy in the temple who stood up in the front and said, I thank God that I'm here, and God, you should be thankful that I'm here too because I pay tithes and I'm a great guy and I'm a Pharisee and I know the law and all the rest of it, and you should be really blessed that I'm in the assembly here. And the other guy was in the back of the church, you remember, and he smote his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember that story? We should never look down on somebody because they make a mistake. Or we should never look down on somebody because they have a weakness. Or we should never look down on somebody because they trip up somehow. You know what? Traps are laid for every one of us that are associated with the body of Christ. And Brother Branham said, if I read it right, Brother Branham said, every one of us are capable of making mistakes. Satan cannot pluck eternal life out of your life because it's not his to take nor his to give. And he cannot take that away from you. That is something that uh, is just ordained by God from the foundation of the world. But I will tell you what, he can make your relationship with Satan, well, sorry, Satan can make your relationship with God dysfunctional. He can sow all kinds of seeds in there and he can, he can allure you with temptations and he can draw you down a back alley of sin somewhere and make you uh, ashamed of yourself so that the place where you feel like, like, I don't even want to go to church anymore. Let me tell you something. He's just a liar. He's trying to bring you back down to a level that the sons of God are never meant to be on. And you need to say, hey, but I've been redeemed by love divine. Oh, glory, glory, Christ is mine. And yes, I make mistakes, but I have a place of repentance that I can go to. And I have a blood covering, and I'm a part of the covenant of, of, of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can bring myself back up to the same standing as everybody else in the body. Not by my works, but by the grace of Almighty God. 
That's why some of you people that, you know, you hold grudges and we, we get stubborn about things and we get stiff-necked about things and say, well, you know, they, they don't do what I want. They don't do what I like. They don't do what I believe. They don't, they don't act in a certain way. And so we're going to ostracize them or we're going to kick them out. We're going to keep them outside the fellowship. Shame on you. We should treat each other better than that. We should be identified. Are you hearing me this morning? We should be identified as a society of forgivers. A group of people that are quick to forgive because you never know, but you might need that forgiveness sometime in your life. We should be quick to resolve our differences and put our arms around one another because if you can't do it here, you're certainly not going to do it there because death doesn't change you. It only changes your dwelling place. But sometimes people get so self-righteous that they feel like they're right and I don't need to apologize and I don't need to do this and I don't need to do that. And you know what? You're just biting your nose off. You're not accomplishing anything. And the problem is you're not reflecting the spirit of Christ. To me, Christ went to the cross. He went to the cross. In other words, he died over this issue. He found a hill to die on that really meant something to all of us, and he did it. He died. And I think it doesn't hurt for us to go to the same mountain and die over issues that really in the long run, through eternity, in the measurement or comparison of eternity, they don't matter a lick. All it is is Satan trying to get in and cause disharmony and dysfunction because that's all he's really good at. And he tries to put wedges between people, tries to put wedges in churches. He tries to do it, uh, you know, in the times of virus. He'll use whatever is out there. He'll use whatever you give him. Whatever occasion that pops up between young people or between families or whatever else, he'll use that and jump on that and cause friction and division and everybody takes sides and everybody gets hurt and somebody gets their feelings hurt. You're taught better than that. We're taught better than that. People hide behind all kinds of excuses and all kinds of things to do what they want to do and they really just want to do it in their heart. Hey, there are people who are not here, people who are concerned, some of our elderly folks who are not here, uh, who are, uh, you know, they're, they're generally concerned about being in a crowd. I, and I'll, I've told them all. I've said it and I'll say it again publicly. I understand that and I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate them looking out for their own health and for the health of other people. And that's certainly fine if they want to stream. As we were able to stream and we're thankful for the, the ability to be able to do that. But you know, these people, uh, they're, they're the kind of people that they always want to let me know that they're there. Because you know what? We're a part of the body. You might not see my face, but we're a part of the body. And you know what? They send their tithes in regular. And, and they're, they just they want to know what's going on. They're, they're, they comment on service. They're amen. And my phone will be full of amens of certain people that are there. You know why? Because they're, they're, they're taught that way. And we're a part of a body. We're, we're, we're a part of one another. And you know what? When one, when one member hurts, we all hurt. And one, when one member is out... Something is just not right. I understand the reasons that some people are not here. I don't understand everyone's. But I understand the reason most people who are not here are not here. I understand that. Can I tell you a little story? Thank you. (laughs) There was a guy who was sitting out of church much longer than he should have. I'm not, again, I'm not being critical of people who are listening here today, who are streaming, being safe, not, not at all. The pastor finally went over and visited him, knocked on the door and said, hey, do you mind if I come visit for a little while? He said, sure, it's the old days. 
the old days brought them in the front room and they had a fire going in the fireplace. Pastor exchanges how he does and they sit down. Pastor reaches over and just takes a little log out of the fire. Just pulls it out and lays it on the front of the hearth. Goes out. Didn't say anything. Talked away. Probably an hour. Visited with the fellow. Asking about, you know, hey, listen, we miss you at church. We'd love to have you. Is there anything wrong? Can I, we talk about anything? So forth. And um, talked away. Had a good conversation. Took about an hour. After the, it was all done, the pastor just reached over and he took the log, which had gone out, just put it back in the fire, <laughs> burst out into flames. The old guy said, I get it. I get it. There was a fellow one time who was staying out of church, an old guy. You lose your fire. You're not in the right place. Because you're not meant to be outside. You're meant to be on fire with the rest of us. You're meant to be included in the rest of us. So God is telling the folks through Moses here, you know what? We should all be thankful that we have a law of jubilee that actually is going to redeem us when we get in trouble because we all can get in trouble. We can all get in debt. And we have a law that God didn't want the people to remain in bondage forever. We have a law. But when that law is satisfied, don't you carry over that conviction and have an attitude towards that fellow. Brother Branham said this, I believe in, it's the coming in of the issue of God. This is where, where, the time we're living in, 1962. The great revelations of the word open up during this time. God ever sends his power to the church. It'll be his grace. It won't be the obedience of the people. Did you get that? If God ever sends his power to the church, God ever does something greater for the church, it'll be his grace. It won't be the obedience of the people. Isaiah 40, cry to Jerusalem that her warfare was accomplished. Yet guilty of idolatry, but it was God's grace that was sending it. God says anything, God sends anything to us, it'll be his grace, not our merits. I didn't say that. The prophet said that. That despite our disobedience, despite our stiff neck, despite our stubbornness, and despite our jealousies and all the other things that exist among human beings, and God is telling Moses to address that when these people are freed and during the time of Jubilee. Let me tell you, despite that, God still is willing to bless his people. I don't want to miss out on that blessing, folks. I don't want to miss it out. I predicted there'll be a change. I don't know what it'll be, but I believe it's fixed to happen right on the eve of it right now. Let me, go, let me go a step farther and say this. I believe that if all of us sit down at the marriage supper, it'll not be because we get it all right. It'll be because of the grace of God that brings us there. The grace of God will be the thing that transports us into that, into that seat that's got your name on it. It won't be because you get it all right and you get it all figured out and you have always had the right attitude 100% of the time. Let me tell you something. That's not, that is not what will get you there because our human efforts are good and they're commendable, but they're really not good enough. It'll be the grace of God that gets us there and it'll not be your actions that get you there. I'm glad we serve a Savior who's that compassionate and that that sensitive to the things that uh, God has given to us. I'll tell you what, I'm so grateful that we have that. Now, let me just stop and, and, and find a stopping place here and say this. 
Even though we don't have dominion like Adam had, God still gave us this capacity to rule. You remember what God said about Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. He said, I know Abraham that he will rule his house well. And that's why God gave him the promises that he did. In Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, by myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing. What thing? This thing. Holding his knife and ready to sacrifice Isaac. Because you have done this and you're going to go ahead and complete the task and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. So even though we don't have a dominion like Adam had, we still have the right to possess the gates of our enemies. Which means that you as a father, you have a right to make a standard in your house and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. When your kids have quirks and they, have, they get all bent out of shape because of this and that that happens right here, a father has to write and come in and say, listen, I know this may not be what you agree with, but we're going to do this anyway because it's the right thing to do. And all the fathers said, Sometimes a father, he can possess the gates of his enemy. He can destroy the gates of his enemy when he says, you know what, we're not going to have that particular social media in our house. We're going to let that go and we're going to destroy the gates of our enemy. We're not going to let something get hold that eventually will have consequences down the road. A mom and a dad, they have a right to possess the gates of their enemy. I said a mom and a dad, they, they, to me they should work together and have uh, the right to say in their household, as for me and my household, this is the way we're going to do it. Because if you don't take, if you don't take possession of what God has given to you, there's somebody in the wings who will quickly take possession in your absence. And you don't want him to take possession of the minds of your children. You don't want him to take possession of uh, the direction of your, of your teenagers and where they're going and to allow them to fester in their attitudes. You don't want to have him take control of that. You want to step in and destroy. That's what the meaning of the word is here. And we're going to devour, destroy, and bring to ruin the gates of our enemy. And we are going to have the maturity and oversight to apply it in love and in grace with patience. But we are not going to let the destroyer in this house. You have a right given by Father Abraham to his seed, and I believe I'm a royal seed of Abraham. You have a right to possess the gates of your enemy. Because your enemy exists. Your enemy is real. Your enemy would love to devour your children and sift them like wheat and spit them into a strong wind, scatter them before the four corners of the earth. You have an enemy that would like to do whatever he could to cause children to feel like their virtue is worthless, that their integrity doesn't matter anymore. The enemy would like to make your young people think that they have a right to do whatever they want to do. And if I understand liberty correctly, liberty is never the right to do what you want to do. Liberty is always the principle by which God sets you free to do what God predestinated you to do. Liberty is the freedom to become what God ordained you to do. Liberty is not.
the right to own your car, do what you want, go where you want, live whatever way you want to. You can do that as an adult, obviously, later on in life. But when your children are growing up and they're still in your household and they're still under your control, I believe you have a right to exercise the possession of the gates of your enemy. You have the right to break those gates down, to steal his influence, and to take back whatever he's taken from you. To take it back and say, this is not yours, this is mine. We've been redeemed by love divine. Let's stand to our feet. There's a difference between dominion and possession. Dominion will come back to us. Malachi 4 promises that. We read that. You shall come out like calves of the stall and you tread on the ashes of the wicked. You'll have dominion again over the earth. God will restore that. But until then, we have the right to possess. The right to possess means that I'm going to do whatever I need to do to my enemy's gates to break them down so they don't have the control over my family. Or they don't have control over me. I'm going to put a blocker on the internet. I'm going to put uh, the right kind of um, accountability in place. Whatever, Whatever we need to do, we're going to do that. And I have a divine right to do that, which is given to me by Scripture. We have to apply it in love. We have to apply it without legalism. We have to apply it in a way that God would lead us to do this for the better good of our family. But I believe it's important. I believe when we do that, it is no different than God putting boundaries or hedges in place to protect his children. And I believe that that's exactly what fathers need to do because, after all, they're made in the image of God. Come away, my child. Let's sing that little chorus this morning as we begin. Let's sing together. Come away, my love. Come away, my love. For this day, when I can give you your new name, eternity awaits us. Come away, my love. Sing it now. Come away, my love. Come away, my love. I have waited for this day. us come away my love sing it again now oh come away my love come away my us come away you are my strength when I am weak 
the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Jesus. Taking my sin, my cross, my shame, rising again, I bless your name. Down you pick me up when I am dry, fill my cup, for you are my all. chorus again now. Jesus, he's the Lamb of God. Worthy is your name. Jesus, you're the myself away. Brother Branham made a statement back here, which I can see is pretty relevant. He said that God's looking for mature sons. And he says, that'll never be accomplished outside of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit brings sons to maturity. Laying in the presence of the Spirit, laying in the presence of the Son, that's what brings us to maturity. That's what, that's what it takes. That's what it, to me, that's what is requires to make make the effort to you know we come together it's not always an easy thing especially to these days it's not always an easy thing but it's an important thing because somehow or another God uses that assembling of his people to bring his sons and daughters to maturity now, Satan's kind of gri- trying to grip the world and prevent us from gathering together I'm glad we at least have this I'm glad we at least have this much of an opportunity to get together I appreciate you being here today I appreciate you making an effort to be here Bring your families and tell your families by coming. This is important. This is an important thing to do. And I don't mean to embarrass him, but I know that Brother David got up this morning at 3 a.m. to work for three hours, three to six, 
and then get his family and come down here for this service and then go back again today. Because he wanted to be in church. Not because that's an easy thing, but because he wanted to be in church. He wanted to have his family in church. You're making a statement all the time. You're, make, you're saying something all the time. That I want to be where the Holy Spirit brings me to maturity because I can't do it myself. If I could just stay home in my, in my office and play a tape and you know just have everything that I'm supposed to have, well, hey, it makes sense for us all to stay home in a more comfortable chair and come to maturity. But somehow or another, God's order is that we come together. And in that presence of the moving of the Holy Spirit, God can do things in our hearts. How many would agree? I believe that God can do things for you right there where you're sitting in your chair. If you need healing, you need a blessing, you need an answer or something, I believe that God's able to do that. So you need in this atmosphere, you just need to hold on. You say, well, I, uh, I got a problem. And uh, Lord, is it my attitude that's holding up the solution? You might want to ask that question. You might want to say, well, Lord, if I, maybe if I'm indifferent to something, show me, the, show me your way. Show me what you would do. Because I'm made in the image of God, so I'm supposed to reflect or do it like you would do it. So let me be like Jesus here. Let me be like, let me be like you for a minute here. And let me, just, let me just say it this way. I only do that which the Father shows me. When you do that and you say that and you think that, you're actually becoming more like a Christian all the time. Sing it now. Here I am. Here I stand. And Lord, my life is in your hands. Lord, I'm longing to see your desires revealed in me. Give myself Sacrifice all my 
father reached out and waited and grabbed that bee and squeezed it. And uh, the boy was greatly relieved when he did that. And he rolled down the window and, and was going to cast the bee out. But you know, like bees don't always cooperate. And the bee just circled around and flew right in the back seat and came in again. And the boy went, he went crazy because the bee was back in again. And the father did this. He reached over to his son. He went like that. He said, look. And the boy looked over and he said, he said, when I squeezed it, I took the stinger out of it. He said, so the bee can be here, but it's not going to hurt you. He said, I've taken the stinger out. You know what? We serve a God who took the stinger out of death. And said, we're surrounded by it. But you know what? I've taken the stinger out. Take a look. I've taken the stinger out. The resurrection proves that the stinger is out of death. So you don't need to fear that. We, we live in a world that's dominated by fear. And you know what? It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Because not only do we have the natural fears of sickness and everything else, but we also have this natural fear. Does anybody know what we're supposed to be doing? Does anybody know where to go? Does anybody know where there's a place of safety? And to me, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he'll just hold out his hand every now and then and show us. He said, I got it. I've done this. It's all right. You're going to be all right. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we serve a God who cares about all that we go through. You're a God who calms our fears. You're a God who has taken the stinger out of death. You've taken a fear out of the future. And Lord, you have taken the uncertainty out of uncertain times. And you've given us a certain message, a certain sound that guides us now, leads us. Lord, the Holy Spirit is one who has taken control of the bride of Christ. And Lord, I for one, I'm glad that I, I don't have to lead her. I just got to follow you. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the message. We thank you for all the truth that you have given to us as a true absolute in a time when absolutes are crumbling all over the world. We look to you. We trust you. You've taken the fear out of the scenario for us. Yes, there is uncertainty about how this will all come out. And we have uncertainty about our jobs and things like that. And we wonder and we think and we pray. And, but Lord, at the end of the day, we know you're in control. Help us, Lord, in our humanness. Help us where we are. Help us, Lord, I pray, with our weaknesses that we have. Help us with our temper. Help us, Lord, with our personality. Because, Lord, we want to become more like you, not more like the natural part. We want to become more like you. 
Father, I pray for those who are sick today. Pray for those who are needy and those who need a touch from you. Think of those who are away today and think of those, Lord, who are suffering. Think of Sister Sarah's cousin, Lord, in South Carolina on a sick bed. Think, Lord, of Brother Ron Spencer. Many, many others, Lord, that are reaching out to you now. Think of Connie and Troy and their son, Lord, and and just so many others, oh God, that come to our minds. Father, have your way, we pray. Lord, keep us from sickness. Lord, keep us also from fear. Keep us from the evil one. And we'll give you thanks and praise. Bless our week, bless our time together. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And all the brides said, amen and amen. We'll have service here on Wednesday night. But before we go, we're going to sing. I'm not afraid of the darkness. Whom shall I fear if God be for me? What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? I'm not afraid anymore. No. Afraid of the darkness, whom shall I fear if God be for me? What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? I'm not afraid anymore. No, I'm not afraid anymore. One more time. I'm not afraid of the darkness. Whom shall I fear if God be for me? I say to these things. What shall we say to these things? Oh, I'm not afraid anymore. No. the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for coming today. God bless you. May God protect you over the week. We'll see you on Wednesday night for those of you that are able to be here. May the Lord be with you and bless you. Good to have all of our visitors and friends here. Let's sing that again one more time as we go. God bless you. Go this way. Go that way. Go in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid of the darkness. Oh, who shall I fear if God be for me? To these things, what shall we say to these things? Oh, I'm not afraid anymore. No, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid darkness whom shall I fear if God be for me